Good morning, St. Matt's. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the student ministers at Wild Street. Really glad to be here today, and it's such a privilege to be able to bring God's Word to you and to be part of this series on Mark's Gospel. So please keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 12, and we'll jump right in. Once I get there. Um, and before we do that, how about I pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Mark's gospel. I pray that you help us to really think deeply about Jesus and about who he is here in these words. I pray it all for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Okay, so I'll start with an analogy, as you do. Um, there's the idea of the one you might be familiar with. You know, is, is he the one, is she the one, that kind of thing. And often the, you know, the whole premise of a romantic comedy is about how there really is the one out there somewhere, and it's a, it's a quest overcoming all odds to find the one for that fairy tale ending. And pop songs are often about the one as well, singing about Romeos and Juliets, begging them, please don't go. And sometimes Christians talk about being in love, in love with Jesus, like he's the one. And I can imagine how it can be uh, cringy for the outsider looking in, you know, the songs we sing sometimes. But as a Christian, I genuinely, I genuinely do love Jesus. I really do. And I'm sure many of you guys would say the same as well. But what does that actually mean? You know, how would you, how would you go about explaining your love for Jesus to someone who isn't a Christian? It's hard to get across what it means to love Jesus when there's lots of uh, cultural things that hang on to the idea of loving someone. And so as I kept thinking, I thought of this analogy that might be helpful. Uh, it's an analogy that might be helpful for Christians to understand things from an outsider's perspective. So I reckon um, asking someone to become a Christian can come across like you're inviting them into an arranged marriage. It's kind of like an arranged marriage with an arranged marriage of Jesus. You know, you tell your single friend, um, "Hey, there's someone I know. You should meet them, and you should definitely, definitely commit your entire life to them in the covenant of marriage." It's a hard sell. You know, you can say things like, "They're great. Seriously, just trust me. Just meet them one time." You'll see. But for this person you're trying to convince, there's at least one big problem. You know, who is this guy? How can I make that kind of a commitment to someone I don't know? And so one of the biggest challenges is simply to do with knowing the one you're marrying. Because even if they are the one, a person needs to know them well enough. And so even if Jesus is the one, a person first needs to know Jesus enough. And I reckon it would be spot on to say that the gospel author Mark wants us to know Jesus well enough so that we would commit our lives to him. Not that far from setting up an arranged marriage. And so my hope for all of us, as we do think about Jesus in the second half of Mark chapter 12, is that we would, love, we would know Jesus a little more. And so love him a little more, maybe a lot more. But it's that simple. 
So our goal for the next 25 minutes or so is just that you and I would love Jesus more. And if we achieve that goal, I think it would be pretty obvious and natural how we might explain and show people what loving Jesus is about. Now in today's passage, we're jumping right into a scene midway. Jesus is in Jerusalem, the capital city, the big smoke. And since arriving, he's been in conflict with the religious bigwigs. You know, they got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They're the religious fat cats of town. And they don't love Jesus. They don't like him either. There's tension in there. And this is basically like the, the last straw before they rise up to arrest Jesus in the garden. You know, the three groups I mentioned just now, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they've already been confronted by Jesus' authority, and they don't like it. First, the Pharisees, they rose up to trap him in his talk. You can flick your eyes over to chapter 12, verse 13 for that one. And then after them, the Sadducees tried to give Jesus a curveball from verse 18. But Jesus doesn't break a sweat. They're not even on his level. And so now in today's passage, a single scribe comes up to Jesus with another question. This third confrontation. And so we start at verse 28. The scribe has heard Jesus' answers to the previous two groups who were not honest in their questioning. And this scribe sees that Jesus had answered them well. There's no bad motives in this one, no tricks or tests. It seems like he's different from the other uh, two religious leaders. It seems like he just wants to ask a question that he wants a good answer to. And it's a good question. He wants to know which is the most important law. Because the Jews are on about following God's laws. You know, practicing God's law really mattered to the Jews back then, and a lot of their traditions back then have come through to today. And to help you get a vibe of what some of this Jewish law is like, I found a great step-by-step -step guide for meal hand-washing, straight from Shabbat.com, which is not a holy text, of course. It's just a website, a Jewish website, with an explanation of what you do uh, with meal hand-washing. So here we go. <clears throat> So firstly, do this only before eating a meal with bread or matzah. Uh, halakha also requires washing before cake if it is eaten as a full meal. Bread is considered the staple food of all foods. Potatoes, just miss the boat. You remove your rings, unless you never remove them, in which case they are they're considered part of your hand. And you fill a cup of water and you pour twice on your right hand and repeat on the left, and if you're a lefty, you reverse the order. And you make sure that the water covers your entire hand until the wrist bone with each pour. You separate your fingers slightly to allow the water in between them. And after washing, you lift your hands, chest high, and say the following blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of the hands. Say this blessing only if you intend to eat more than two ounces of bread. I'll just stop there. There's more, but you get the picture. There's a lot of specific things about what part of your body, um, the height of things, uh, the order of things. And it sounds over the top. And it is over the top. 
even the comments on the website, you kind of, I scrolled down and I read some of the comments after these instructions and some people are asking about uh, whether tortillas count as bread and what do you do if you don't have a, like a literal cup to pour the water. But I can kind of understand where they're coming from. Um, the Jews want to obey God's law accurately and faithfully. Even if they've confused themselves in the process with these add-ons, and so it's with this kind of confused but wanting to be faithful heart that the scribe comes to Jesus with this question: "What is the most important commandment?" And Jesus' answer: "The Lord is one. The Lord is one. Love God." Jesus isn't confused. He isn't complicated. He didn't complicate things in his previous two responses to the Pharisees and Sadducees either. Jesus shows his authority over God's law, and he answers what no one else can answer. And his answers silence them. So let's just think about this answer for a little bit right now. Jesus is basically quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, chapter 6, verse 4. It's called the Shema. It's a daily prayer said by Jews even today. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, every five-year-old Jewish boy in Israel today could recite the Shema to you. Super important, super, super important and super famous. And its opening line is profound, that God is one. Now, what does it mean for God to be one? It's obvious, but it's worth saying that God is one means there's only one God. It's not rocket science, is it? But how often have you stopped to think about it? You know, when I read the Lord is one, my first thought was in terms of quantity. Yeah, yeah there's, only, there's only one God. But there's actually so much in that. You know, wherever you are right now, you just look around, Look at your furniture, um, your house plants if you have them, or if you have a pet, you can look at them as well. Or if you have a window nearby, you can look out and see what's out there. You know, all these things, everything, actually has its source in one God. And there's there's a kind of simplicity and certainty in that. I don't mean just the materials they're made out of either. I mean, why they're there as well. The choices that were made, the timing of things. One God organized it. It wasn't this cooperative effort. It wasn't chance. And neither is it just the way it is. But one God is behind everything. Maybe you've recently stopped to think about you know, COVID-19, its impact on the world. Or maybe you've had to make some significant life choices recently. You know, if there's only one God, then everything revolves around Him. It's simple. But if we add other gods into the picture, it's no longer simple, is it? Everything gets really confusing. It's like for the scribe, he doesn't know what to do. The religious leaders, they've put together this mess of traditions, and it's such a mess that you know, piety, trying to look holy, becomes a God. And behind that, when 
when they really want to be pious, they're just serving themselves. And in a very real way, they make themselves God. It's like a, it's a deep-rooted selfishness and sin on show. You know, to use Jesus' language coming up later, it's sin dressed up in beautiful robes. So unlike the scribes, Jesus clears everything up and he brings us back to the scriptures simply and clearly. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God of all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second half follows, love your neighbor as yourself. We're to love God and love our neighbors. First to love God, second to love our neighbors. And let's never forget the first in the quest for the second. Loving God is the main game. He's the one. He's The greatest commandment is to love God. But a lot of people want Christians to just focus on loving our neighbors. You've heard it said that um, churches should just evolve into charitable organizations. You know, do good, drop the evangelism and the doctrine and all the God stuff. And a lot of Christians and their churches have actually fallen for this trap. You know, a lot of people in this world want to imagine that they can have the good without the God as if they have power in themselves to love and give and sacrifice, as if they can love their neighbors as themselves, and they don't need God. A lot of people want to think that. And it makes me really sad. Because the reality is there is one God, isn't there? And he is our God. And he wants us to respond to him by loving him. By treating him as the one. The Bible's invitation to love God is special. I'm not an expert on Islam, but from what I know about Islam, the most important thing for a Muslim is to submit to God, or for a human being, is to submit to God. I'm told that the word Islam literally means submission. Loving God is not the main game. And for the people who want Christians to do good, drop God, they just see God as a rule giver a source of morals, like many of the scribes who are obsessed with the law. They miss the precious, the precious truth that God is inviting us to love him, to be in relationship with him. They don't see that the one God wants us to love him. Like we read in verse 33, he wants us to love him more than he wants burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so when we make it all about loving our neighbors separate from loving God, we actually reject God. Jesus brings us back to the order of things. God is one. Love him. Love your neighbor. As we move on to verse 35, it's Jesus' turn to ask the questions. And he's about to use a question to make an audacious claim. He's just said that, it's all about loving God, hasn't he? You know, recognizing that God is one, God is God alone. And now Jesus is about to say that the greatest commandment is actually about loving him. Jesus said, love God. And now he's going to connect the dots and Jesus says, love me. So he opens up Psalm 110. 
It's one of the key psalms. It's the psalm of King David. It's called to the mighty king. It's going to destroy God's enemies. And Jesus just wants to point out the strange way in which it starts. Just the way that the psalm starts. The Lord said to my Lord. It's confusing, but look at this. Jesus is saying that David says that God says. It is confusing, so just follow along with the words in front of you. Jesus, uh, yeah, Jesus is talking, right? So Jesus is saying that David says, verse 36, that God says this stuff to my Lord. And so Jesus wants to ask, who is God speaking to? The Lord, God, is speaking to David's Lord. But if this is about the promised mighty king, who is a son of David, how can David's son be greater than him? The Jews, they were all looking forward to David's son, uh, a king promised to Israel. But this son is greater than David because he is David's Lord. Because David's son is the Lord himself. David's son is God. Jesus has been Establishing his authority over and over again, going higher and higher over evil spirits, nature, religious leaders and the law. And he goes higher still. It's not high enough. Jesus even has authority over the mighty King David. You know, his question reveals that the expectations for the Messiah are too low. If they're looking forward to a son of David who's going to restore the kingdom to Israel like it was in David's time, then the expectations are too low. Jesus is better than David. And so his kingdom is better than David's. The religious leaders are off the mark, and they confuse those they teach. But this leader, he brings a better kingdom with people who he will protect and teach, and a kingdom that will never end. And this king will be higher than King David, because this king is the Lord himself. Are you beginning to see the audacity of Jesus here? Jesus is claiming to be God. And just think about how crazy it becomes when you put these two passages together. The greatest commandment is to love God. Then he says, I am God. Love me. We've just said that God is the one. And now Jesus is saying, I am the one. Loving me is the greatest commandment. It's incredible. It's an enormous request. You think about the arranged marriage analogy again. Imagine that you're not a Christian and you're hearing that the greatest commandment from Jesus' own lips is to love him. What would you think? It's huge, isn't it? Would you be up for meeting him and getting to know him? You've got to be pretty bold to say something like this. You can, see that, you can see that being a Christian can't just be a hobby, can it? Something you do on a Sunday or at Christmas and Easter. Jesus is making a claim in our lives here. Because he is the one that the whole romantic plot revolves around. He's the main character, he's the king, he's the love of our lives, he's the one. And so how about we meet more of him right now? Let's finish off by meeting him in the drama of verses 38 to 44. Really love this scene. You gotta imagine this part like a play. 
At the end of verse 37, we read that the great throng heard him gladly. So you've got to imagine Jesus and the crowd on the stage, okay? They're in the temple. There's cheering and there's gasping. There's excited chatter ebbing and flowing between the mass of people on stage. And Jesus on stage, he turns to face the audience, us. And imagine the stage lights, they're dimmed, but a single spotlight brings the attention to Jesus. He says to the, to the audience, verse 38, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And after saying this, keep picturing the scene, Jesus stops addressing the audience and he walks over and takes a seat nearby, just, on, just a short distance away. And the spotlight that was on him, it moves to an offering box. And we just see Jesus watching from a short distance. And what does he see? The rich come up in their long robes, pouring huge amounts of money into the offering box. And then a poor widow enters, stage right. She slowly approaches the offering box. She puts in a couple of copper coins. And just as quietly as she appears, she disappears from the stage. And so again, the spotlight just rests on the lonely offering box. And Jesus, sitting to the side, he was watching them the whole time. He gets up. The spotlight moves back to Jesus. He faces the audience and he says, starting from verse 43, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. He slowly turns away from the audience, and we move to the next scene. Now, what did you see in this scene? I see a man who sees. Let me explain, starting from verse 38. The scribes, remember the scribes, they love the praise of men. They love to be seen. Beautiful robes, stacks of cash, pious giving. They loved other people seeing them and praising them and favoring them. But they got seen in a different way that day. As Jesus sat at a distance watching, he saw right through them. He saw their hypocrisy. He saw their greed. He saw how the scribes did not actually love God as the one. And actually, they made themselves God. It's obvious in what they do. They they pray long prayers, not to speak with God, but to show off. They put themselves in high and special positions, elevating themselves. They take advantage of widows, getting rich off the poor. These signs of power-hungry self-importance show that they're putting themselves in the place of God. And Jesus sees. And Jesus promises condemnation. But the scribes aren't the only one 
who Jesus sees. Jesus sees a, a poor widow, doesn't he? And did you notice that's actually all that he does for her? He only sees her. She doesn't get anything from Jesus. Jesus very obviously doesn't give her money to fix her poverty. He doesn't chase, her, chase after her and just fill her hands with money that she doesn't have. But he doesn't even he doesn't even encourage her, does he? Look at verse 43. He only tells his disciples. He tells them, yeah, this widow, she's done right. And Jesus commends her quiet faithfulness. And the way that Mark records this for us, he does the same thing, doesn't he? He doesn't give us anything about her. No name, no backstory, no sad violin music. We don't know why she was giving all that she had. We don't know what led her to the offering box that day. Only Jesus knew. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter if people don't know and see her faithfulness. Because Jesus saw her faithfulness. And she might not have ever known his commendation. Not until the day she stood before him. And he said the words to her, Well done, good and faithful servant. And so what a comfort it is for us today. To know that Jesus sees us. He sees those private sacrifices. When we give our left, our right hand doesn't know. He sees when we shut the door and we pray. And like this poor widow, when we run life's marathon, we seek to trust Jesus at every twist and turn, maybe we don't have a crowd cheering for us on the sidelines. But you know, Jesus will be waiting at the finish line. And he'll be ready for us. I know that he will be cheering and clapping, and will be parched, and he will give us a cup to drink. That's the kind of Jesus we meet here. You see, the one we are invited to love loves us. You know, when I brought up the arranged marriage analogy at the start, there was the problem of knowing the guy, right? But there might have been another question that came to your mind. Would he love me? If he's so great, why would he love me? Why would he bother loving me? But the greatest commandment to love Jesus comes with a promise that Jesus loves you. You see, your love for Jesus will never be an unrequited love. And this isn't trite, wishful thinking. Remember the rich young man from a couple of chapters ago? We heard a sermon about him a few weeks ago. In chapter 10, verse 21. Flip over there, should just be a couple pages earlier. Chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus really loved him. But would this man give away his wealth and love Jesus? Two chapters later, it's no accident that this poor widow is the opposite of the rich young man in every way. And there's the obvious, she's a poor widow, he's a rich man. But there's the most important difference. She 
put in her two copper coins, all that she had to live on. But he couldn't let go of his many more coins, all that he had. This widow loved God as the one. There was no competition in her eyes, no room for other gods. She threw in those two copper coins, all that she had to live on, because her life was not in those two coins. She knew that her life was in one God. The rich man, he held on to his money, his God. And please don't walk away from today with a misunderstanding that, you know, it's, it's not about what they did. What we do does not earn God's love. It's the outward actions that show what's going on in their heart. In his heart, he didn't love God as the one. He didn't love Jesus as the one. And the sad reality is that the scribes who loved themselves and the rich man who loved his money, in their hearts, they've rejected God. They've rejected Jesus. They've turned down a relationship with Jesus of things that will not last and for things that will not love them back. But this poor widow has loved God and she will be welcomed and comforted and forgiven because Jesus loves her and that can never be taken away from her. I'm going to finish off with a couple of quotes. This first one's quite well known. It's from a man called Jim Elliot, who was a missionary to remote South America and he was killed evangelizing a jungle tribe. And he faithfully said that he is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And secondly, this other quote is also very famous. You guys probably know this one. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us in Jesus. Please help us to love you, to love Jesus. Please help us to see this Jesus who loves us. To know that Jesus sees us and he loves us and he has loved us most of all by dying on the cross for us. By saving us from our sins. So I pray, Father, that we would not reject you, but that we would love you and we would help others to do the same. I pray this all for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.